Offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet, dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, and I'm here to continue with our study of the Bhagavad Gita. We are in the fourth chapter, and as you all know, in this particular program, we go through the entire Bhagavad Gita verse by verse and try to understand it in the context of the entire text as well as in the context of whatever Swami has said to us on different occasions. And of course, we take a lot of reference from the Gita Vahini. In fact, that is what guides our study of the Bhagavad Gita itself. As I've mentioned many times before, the Bhagavad Gita is very profound for the fact that it speaks of this particular dilemma that Arjuna the warrior has. As it was, if I were to put it in a phrase, made famous by Shakespeare to do or not to do or to be or not to be. A dilemma of that sort is what Arjuna has found himself in and the whole discourse is about action and how to go about doing what you're supposed to do and what is it that one is supposed to do. But in the course of trying to explain this, Krishna touches upon so many very, very important topics and that is why there are individual shlokas which are very profound. They give a very profound understanding about certain aspects of spiritual life. There are certain portions which speak about practices, explains them. There are certain portions which speak about the nature of God. We came across one particular portion where the nature of an avatar is explained so beautifully by Krishna. So there is so much to learn in parts as well as the entire underlying philosophy too. But we are in that part of the Bhagavad Gita, especially in the fourth chapter, where we are in the heart of the subject, the very concept which the Bhagavad Gita stands for, which is karma. The whole discourse is precisely about this concept of karma and we are in that portion where Krishna is going to dwell very, very deeply into this idea of karma itself. But before we do that, as always, let's start by a short summary of what we did last week because... These are shlokas which are very closely related and uh, there's only this much we can cover in one hour and that's why we're having to split it. Otherwise, there is a very beautiful correlation and flow between each of these shlokas and I think we'll try to do that even as I'm explaining these shlokas. But nevertheless, I think we can't help but have breaks in between. So what we covered last week were shloka numbers 12, 13 and 14. The 12th verse is pretty much a continuation of that answer that Krishna was giving Arjuna to the question, why doesn't Krishna, why doesn't God give the ultimate moksha to everyone? When that is the ultimate, why not bless everyone with that? So in the 12th verse, Krishna says, people have to ask for it. I am here to give anything one wants, but the desire for a particular state or a particular gift has to come from the person who is asking. And apart from that, God himself time and again comes down in a human form or through saints and noble souls keeps informing man or keeps man educated about what is worthwhile asking, right? It's not that we have been completely left in the dark. We've also been informed. We've also been trained. Even the knowledge has been made available to us that what is worthy of seeking and what is trivial, right? But nonetheless, the asking part is left to the devotee. In this verse, Krishna says that people come and ask only for the fruition of actions, but not to be freed from actions themselves. And why is that so? Because what can be achieved through actions are a low-hanging fruit. So people turn to God nevertheless, but they turn only to secure these already low-hanging fruits which can be achieved through one's own actions. And as we saw that, there are certainly, even though these can be achieved through actions, even though we can become rich by the actions that we do, even though we can lead a healthy life by certain actions that we perform, nevertheless, there are always uncertainties in life and most often people turn to God to even out these uncertainties or to deal with these uncertainties, but still to achieve fruits which can be achieved through one's own actions. So people turn to God, but only to help in securing what they can get through their own actions. And we had seen how when you seek such fusion of actions, you are trying to invoke only a very limited aspect of divinity. 
and krishna says that these people worship deities or devatas he doesn't say that they worship the lord supreme he says they turn to devatas even if if a person might be praying to whatever form of god as the one god or the almighty or whatever you might call that lord but when you pray for fruition of certain actions it is like turning to a certain aspect of divinity right so krishna says i am one and the same for everyone i treat everyone equally i respond with equal magnanimity but the difference is created by the difference in the nature of people who come to me and seek right so he says i do not create the difference but the very fact that different people ask for different things different people approach is different different people's needs are different that creates the difference so he says through this the four varnas or the castes are created so though god does not actively or purposely differentiate between those who come to him by being same to all he creates categories amongst them right then that's a very beautiful concept that we discussed last week just like how a teacher who gives marks purely according to the effort the students have put in based on what they've written on their answer sheets she does not differentiate she does not be partial towards one student or the other but purely by being equal in her approach to the students you have different students getting different grades and the class is divided into o grade students a grade students or the failures or the b grade students right so she is being same to everyone but in the process of being same this differentiation is created in the class and this differentiation is actually created by the students efforts itself so similarly krishna says tasya kartaram apimam vidhi akartaram avyayam though i have created this distinction this varna system i have not created it that is the the subtle aspect that krishna says and in the 14th verse krishna says that in this manner though i act actions don't stain me and whoever understands this nature of mine that everything happens through me but i am not the doer this nature of mine whoever understand is freed from the shackles of karma and these are the few verses that we had gone through but uh, before we go to the next few verses i want to mention that when this portion uh, of the varna system is described in the bhagavad gita in the 13th verse swami extensively speaks about it in the gita vaini in fact i think almost one entire chapter is on this particular caste system and primarily he says how we have completely misunderstood it in fact i didn't make a mention of it last time too because in many ways the modern culture looks down upon the system as being very discriminatory and being the root cause of all the problems especially the country has seen in the past few decades right and uh, as i was explaining last week the system was created for the welfare of society there's absolutely no doubt about that and that's one point swami constantly repeats but the narrow human mind the way it has contorted the system has manipulated the system that corrupted form has become the face of the system right it's just like a few bad doctors cannot bring down the concept of medicine itself few bad practitioners of a system cannot malign the system itself and the system itself cannot be blamed for few people who have contorted and have resorted to malpractice within the system the caste system is pretty much like that and swami says in the gita vaini and i would like to quote a few lines of what swami says there about this particular system swami says without deep inquiry without discrimination if people look at this organization from the external the individual standpoint how can they arrive at the right conclusions the sanctity and value of the caste system will be revealed if you have inner sight a universal outlook and an inquiring spirit end of quote so swami clearly says that this is a system which is so subtle as i said you know krishna says that i have created it but i have not created it i mean that itself needs a little more deep thinking as to how krishna is saying that the caste system has been created me and anything created by me cannot be something which hurts the welfare of society right it needs little deeper thinking and that's what swami says that this system the way this organization cannot be looked at from the external standpoint or from a narrow individual standpoint 
from the point of view of somebody who, who feels that who is being unfairly treated by the system somebody has to look at the entire the holistic approach right just like how any of the other examples that i've given swami clearly says that this kind of distinction happens in every society but in a in a very organic manner and it has happened in an organic manner even in the ancient indian society so swami says that there is a clear pattern here and there is no point in maligning it and completely debunking the system is to the peril of society dr swami further says it looks as if those people who argue that the abolition of the caste system will bring about human welfare are the only ones who consider the system to be beneficial are really eager to promote the downfall of the human society i'll read that line again i think it is a bit confusing swami says it looks as if those people who argue that the abolition of the caste system will bring about the human welfare are the only ones anxious to promote human welfare they believe that those who consider the system to be beneficial are really eager to promote the downfall of human society of course both are delusions but this much is true those who support the caste system are really more interested in the promotion of human welfare the others think that if caste go they will be saving the country that is a deluded belief if only virtues and faults are analyzed carefully and without prejudice there will be an end to this uninformed campaign of hatred and enmity then there will be a great change in the attitude of people towards the caste system end of quote i had made a mention of this even the last week about if we look at the caste system and how some things have gone completely wrong and i had also mentioned a, a few reasons why it had gone wrong in fact swami does clearly say that what went wrong in a very brief statement swami diagnoses the whole problem probably i'll read that out and then share my thoughts on what swami said in the previous excerpt and the next one swami says every object has a certain limit if it exceeds the limits or breaks through them it gets destroyed what is the test of its identity the coordination between its nature and its form if it has the form but not the nature then it is unreal it is false so too if each class has no special limits how can it be identified as a class it will be neither this nor that an amorphous mass a confused group end of quote so the two things that swami is saying that the first one is there are a lot of people who feel that all ills come from the caste system and in a way we point out everything that's gone wrong in the country to the caste system and say that that has to go and everything will be set right and anybody who speaks slightly in favor of the caste system is looked down upon but what swami is saying here and we should not forget that the same swami who is saying all of this is the one who said there is only one religion the religion of love there's only one caste the caste of humanity and we know that swami has championed in many ways the equal treatment of people who come from different strata of society and there's absolutely no doubt about that but when you have a system and if you want to take that system to the future in a modified form if you want to bring it in a form that it takes into account the changes which have happened in society the way we have our minds have changed and you want to have a system which will now work for the present scenario it is always important to look at the past and try to understand why it came to be and why it is the way it is before we try to modify it and i think that is the whole idea that swami is trying to convey that you need to look at it more keenly you have to look at it more dispassionately you have to look at it with a universal outlook and understand why it is there and in what way it helps society and in a manner try to modify it and bring a modified version of it in the present and for the future and very clearly swami says that uh, why is it all broken down it's because every entity has a name and form if you call a certain if you take the varna of kshatriyas right kshatriya is a name that is given to that particular caste or group of people but there is an idea of what kshatriya means right and if the idea fades away and only the name stays 
Swami says that is where the problem starts. You refer to a certain group as Brahmins. The idea of who a Brahmana is, as we had discussed last week, the idea fades away but only the name stays. So that's what Swami says, everything has a nature as well as every object has a nature and a form. The nature goes away but if you want to retain the form, that is when the problem comes in. The form has to be retained with the nature. Right? So the whole idea that Swami has spoken extensively about it and I thought I wouldn't have the time to go through everything that Swami mentions there but if anyone is uh, interested I think you should go to this particular chapter. I think chapter 8 and 9 where Swami speaks extensively about this Varna system where this mention is made. It's only a one line mention in the Bhagavad Gita but Swami makes it and it is important for us to read that and learn our own lessons or find our own ways of looking at the system and understanding how it worked. In many ways, it will help the way we look at our own lives because as Swami says, that we might not be falling into a caste system like in the past as it was created as the four Varna systems. But nevertheless, every society will have its own way of creating caste. Every system will have its own way of segregating people based on these are people who are working, these are people who are contributing to society in a certain manner. These are people who are dependents of the society. There will be some form of segregation and to understand a system such as the Varna system will help us in dealing with our current state of life in whichever country we are in and whichever kind of a system that we might be in. So we'll go to the next lokas. This is what I wanted to share about the caste system and I also wanted to let all the listeners know that if you wish to read more chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Gita Vahini, you can go and read that. It's very enlightening. It's it's very beautiful to go through. So we'll go to the next verse. This is verse number 15. As I said, it's a continuation. That Varna system appeared out of the blue. It seemed like something which was standing out from the conversation which is going on, but it was perfectly placed there as we've seen. So we will see it is going to be a continuation of whatever Krishna has been telling about. His nature of being equal to everyone. His nature of being the doer as well as the non-doer and how that is something that we will all have to try and practice in our own life. So this is verse number 15. As always, we'll listen to it in the voice of Brother Sham. I'll give you a brief meaning after that and then we'll discuss in detail. Evam Yatvakritam Karma Purvairapi Mumukshubhihi Kuru karmaiva tasmatvam Purvaif purvatarankritam Having known thus, duties were performed even by the ancient seekers of liberation. Therefore, you undertake action itself as was performed earlier by the ancient ones. Just to go back a little bit so that the context is made clear, Krishna had ended the previous verse by saying that whoever understands this nature of mine, itimam yaha abhijanati, whoever knows me or understands me as such, in what manner, what is the nature Krishna is referring to? Karma bihi nasa badhyate. He says, itimam yaha abhijanati, whoever understands me in this manner, karma bihi na badhyate, they are not bound by actions. And what is the nature of Krishna that he is referring to as if you know that you will not be bound by actions? He says that this nature of him being the doer and yet being the non-doer. Tasya kartaram api maam akartaram. I am the one who does but also the one who doesn't act. We have discussed this and how this is possible and I just uh, summarized that again today when we started also. And he explained this in the next verse in a different way by saying that because he does not have the desire for anything, no desire for the results, that makes him a non-doer too. right? And all of this is connected. I'm not repeating it all of that again. But how will my nature change if I understand this? Krishna says this is my nature. And how will my nature change and how will I be freed from karmas if I understand this? Because this is the nature of the Atma within each one of us too. Swami would explain this, that without the Atma, the body is incapable of doing anything. Now imagine a person lying there on the floor and let's say that he is a very well-built man. He's six and a half feet tall. He weighs more than 100 kgs. 
and he has this really muscular body. He's so strong that he could probably bend an iron rod with ease. He can lift 50 kgs of weight with one hand. But let's say if this person is lying there and he's lying dead, will that body be able to even lift its own hand? If the soul has departed from such a body, however muscular and mighty it might be, can the body flex even one muzzle? So it is understood that it is the Atma that is truly the doer, which acts through the body and acts from the body, right? The body is nothing but a lifeless vesture. But at the same time, the Atma is Nityamavyayam. It is eternally changeless and that which is changeless does not have any desire or will to act because all willful action is born out of desire to change something, become something, improve something. And when the Atma is Nityamavyayam, it is eternally changeless. There is no will or there is no doership. There is only being. I will repeat the example that I had given a couple of times before. It is like putting your finger in the fire. If you ask what happens if you put your finger in the fire, your finger is burnt. And if you ask who burnt your finger, the fire burnt your finger. But you cannot accuse the fire of hurting you because the fire did not do anything to burn your finger. To burn is its nature and you went and put your finger there, right? So the fire burnt your finger but still it did not burn your finger in that sense that it was not a will-driven action of fire. The fire was just being there and being itself. In the same manner, the Atma is the Karta but at the same time it is the Akarta, the non-doer too. So when we understand this nature of the Atma which is also the nature of Krishna which he has been explaining so far, the mind eventually gets muted or sublimated. But this happens over a period of time and there's no doubt about that. It's not about intellectually knowing the nature of Krishna and instantly we reaching there, right? So this is a knowledge that slowly dawns and in this verse, Krishna explains that. He says, Yevam Nyatva, having known thus, Purvaihi Api, even in the past, Mumukshubihi, Mumukshus or spiritual seekers or seekers of liberation, Kritam karma, performed actions. So once that knowledge becomes perfectly established, then you completely become free because you will start identifying with only the Atma which can act, but it's still not the doer. But till that point, even with this information that it is possible to act like this, with the intellectual understanding that that is the nature of the Atma, one can continue to act. One is still the doer, but this intellectual understanding now becomes a tool to reach that state. And Krishna says, many spiritual seekers, Mumukshubihi, have done that in the past. Kuru karmaiva tasmatvam. He says, Arjuna, you also perform action in the same manner. Purvaihi purvataram kritam. Just how the people of the past did in the past. So if you wish to be a spiritual seeker, you must also act the way the spiritual seekers acted. If you have the perfect knowledge, then actions do not bind you at all. Even if you don't have that perfect knowledge, act like how people who have attained that knowledge acted. And how is that? Do what you are supposed to do and do so only because that is what you are meant to do. Not with any desire of attaining something through that action. right? And this is a refrain which keeps coming again and again and again. Either you reach that state and act or you look at people who have already reached that state and see how they act and try to act in that manner or simulate those same attitudes and actions in your life and eventually you will get there. So that's why Krishna explains his own avatar tattva also. He says that I don't favor people, I don't answer a few and don't answer a few. I am available to all equally and that is my nature. So people come according to their own dispositions and receive from me what they want and I give but I am not the giver because I do not choose, I do not differentiate, I am not partial. In that sense, he says, I am not the doer. In the sense, I am not the giver but I still give, right? So Krishna is saying that it is possible and he gives his own example just like how he gave his own example when he told Arjuna that everyone has to act. When he gave Arjuna the example of 
himself being the stita pragna and again he gives himself being the example of the doer and yet being the non doer and he's saying that even the sadhakas the mumukshus this is not because i am the lord i am able to do this even mumukshus people who are seekers of that liberation have been able to attain the state and he looks at arjuna and says oh arjuna you also will have to try the same thing kuru karmaiva tasmatvam just like how they did in the past oh arjuna you also should act if you were to ask that question why all this why is arjuna being asked to act in this manner the whole context is because arjuna wanted to give up action altogether and krishna is now teaching him that you can still act and you still have to act because whoever you are however wise you are you have to act but there is a way by which you can act and still not be bound by action and that's what krishna is teaching arjuna and through arjuna he is teaching all of us from the next verse which is verse number 16 to verse number 23 krishna is going to speak about this akarma karma right non acting action how we would like to put that or inaction in action this is a very very profound concept and as we just saw in the past couple of verses this is not really alien to us when you say that this is the nature of the atma and when we say that we are not the body and we are not the mind and we are the atma this is our true nature too the ability to act without being the doer the ability to stay in an action even when we are acting right that is our nature and maybe as we go through we will realize that there are stages in our life even now where we can experience this we do experience this once in a while right there are plenty of examples in that so this is not completely difficult you know it is when somebody comes in when krishna comes and tells you will have to act but you should be inactive it seems like something which is too paradoxical to be able to conceive and to practice but it is not as we will see as we go through so the next particular verse which is 16 to 23 krishna is going to speak in detail about this concept so we'll go to the next verse which is verse number 16 we'll listen to it in brother shams voice and then we'll discuss in detail किंकर्मकिमकर्मीति कवयोप्यत्र मोहिता तत्ते कर्म प्रवक्ष्यामी यज्ञात्वा मोक्ष्यसे शुभात इवन द इंटेलिजेंट आर कंफ्यूज्ड एज टू व्हाट इज एक्शन एंड व्हाट इज इनएक्शन I shall tell you of what action by knowing which you will become free from evil. In Vedanta it is said that there are three types or three stages of knowledge or three stages or types of learning and the three words beautiful words in Sanskrit that they use are pratyaksha paroksha and aparoksha pratyaksha the word itself means direct or the immediate experience right so it really means that learning or understanding something through one's own experience pratyaksha if you look at the word the way if you split the word it means through one's own eyes to perceive oneself so it means direct knowledge which can be achieved or gathered through one's own senses the next word paroksha means indirect knowledge which literally means through another's eye para aksha aksha means through eyes and it is not seen through your own eyes but through others eyes right and the word aparoksha means the opposite of paroksha which again means direct knowledge so pratyaksha means direct knowledge paroksha means indirect knowledge and aparoksha again means direct knowledge so why did they use another word for direct and why two forms of direct knowledge pratyakshanana is something that as i said we learn all by ourselves all worldly knowledge is pratyakshanana the material sciences biology astronomy medicine all of that which we can learn through our own effort through our own readings through our own experimenting and understanding we can know all of these things which relate to the physical material world but spiritual knowledge is not worldly in nature isn't it it is not related to matter and hence 
it is not related to the senses the trigger for this kind of a spiritual subtle knowledge has to be set off by an external agency and when we are talking about spiritual knowledge and spiritual learning it has to be triggered by the guru and the guru's words are nothing but a form of anugraha or a form of god's grace that helps us to literally take our game to the next level right to take us to the next stage so this concept that krishna is speaking here is not something that we can learn in our schools or learn by doing a few degrees in material sciences that is why krishna is saying here in this particular verse kim karma what is karma kim akarma what is akarma iti this kavayah api even the learned atra mohitaha are confused or deluded about it this understanding of the concept of karma and akarma does not come through our education through our regular learning we might do three postgraduate degrees we might do three phd's but this shift in understanding literally does not come through this physical learning or knowledge gathering that we do through our senses and process the information that we get through the senses through the mind the best example for that is arjuna himself arjuna is so learned in the art of warfare he is probably very learned in the art of political science he is supposed to be very well versed in the fine arts he is supposed to be a very good musician we know that he is a very good dancer but still he is confused as to what is action and what is inaction because he thought that by not acting or running away from action he will be able to escape karma so clearly he was confused about what is karma and what is a karma and that is why krishna is saying kim karma kim akarma iti kavayah api atra mohitah even the most learned get confused about this get deluded about what is action and what is inaction right similarly he also told i don't want to kill these people in front of me and krishna said but no one dies really right and because no one dies how can you say that you are the one who kills the body is only a dress which people discard at the moment that we refer to as death all these understandings will not come with pratyakshanana the idea that there is a soul that transmigrates from one body to the other the idea that we are not new we are eternal the idea that the body is like a dress which we change and we keep coming back again and again this is not pratyakshanana we do not definitely see it through our own eyes right it is that is why referred to as parokshagnana somebody who has a different idea or different perspective or a higher better perspective will have to introduce that concept in our mind at some point the guru comes and literally triggers a jump in our understanding the guru opens to us vistas of understanding which otherwise would have been absolutely unknown to us for decades we would have been going through our knowledge gathering in the world but would not have come to this subtle knowledge and the scriptures say and even krishna has been saying that here that when you perform good karmas for a long period of time which means even many lifetimes when you have performed your duties diligently your mind goes through the process of being purified and you are found deserving to be given this next level of knowledge the guru enters your life or you are given an insight you know whenever i say guru it not necessarily mean that physically a guru comes walking into your life and gives you the knowledge it could even be an insight from within the insight which does not come from the physical mind but from the deep soul within and that's why swami would say the true guru is within right so this is parokshagnana and indirect knowledge because it is being given to you from a different person or a different perspective what is aparokshagnana then no parokshagnana is called paroksha only because it comes from others it is also called so because it is still not experientially known to us why is pratyakshagnana referred to as direct because it is my own experience water in the lake is blue i have experienced it myself i have gone and seen the water and it is blue the same water seems to have a reddish tinge in dusk again that's something that i've experienced myself fire burns 
objects thrown fall down because there is gravity bones can break if i fall all of this is experiential knowledge and that is why we say all of this is pratyaksha it is direct it is my own experience but paroksha is not direct in that sense for the past so many weeks we've been going through the bhagavad gita and i've been repeating this again and again atma 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 do we really have an experience of the atma i have been quoting krishna and saying atma and parmatma are one and the same have i really felt being divine in that sense no to be honest it's not the case so even though the knowledge has been given to me and i also accept it out of my reverence to swami my guru it is still indirect in the sense that it is not my own experience but at one point it is said that this knowledge will become experiential we will literally be able to see the truth of what was told to us before when this whole thing will become so clear that is what happens to those who realize isn't it when we say that someone has become enlightened this is what actually happens they are called tatvadarshi the tatva the truth the essence they are able to see it now what was paroksha gnana will at one point become aparoksha gnana no more indirect but a direct experiential knowing so to differentiate the second type of direct knowledge from the first type of direct knowledge because pratyaksha is referred to the knowledge that can be gained through our senses through our physical mind but aparoksha gnana is something which is outside of the world outside of our experience but still it is direct so they are both are direct but they are different in their nature and paroksha gnana is what comes in between where you informed about it coming back to the verse that we are going through so krishna says even the learned get confused about this topic tatte karma pravakshyami i will explain to you about this karma tatte karma pravakshyami meaning krishna is saying i will give you the paroksha gnana yat nyatva which when you know meaning when it becomes your aparoksha gnana that when you know it yourself yat nyatva which when you know mokshayase ashubhat you will be liberated from all inauspiciousness and what is ashubha what is inauspicious the samsara or the worldly life is what is referred to as ashubhat here so krishna says that even the learned do not know what is karma and akarma because it is not a pratyaksha it is not something that can be learned in a school learned by gaining degrees and so krishna is saying i will give it to you i will explain it to you which means i will give you the paroksha gnana and when you understand it or realize it that is when it becomes your aparoksha gnana you will realize that you are liberated from the worldly life in the next verse krishna actually elaborates this and uh, what is it that needs to be understood and we'll listen to that shloka that is shloka number 17 and we'll discuss about that probably we'll conclude with that so we'll first listen to shloka number 17 karmano hyapi bodhavyam bodhavyancha vikarmanaha akarmanascha bodhavyam something has got to be understood of good action also and something is to be understood of the wrong action and something is to be understood of non action the true nature of action is inscrutable the word karma is used to denote a plethora of things it simply means action right karma can be literally translated into action it is also used in the context of consequence of the action that we have performed it's my karma we say it also refers to the actions described in the scriptures as actions that have to be performed and karma is also used for ritualistic actions right when we say the karma kanda of the vedas we refer to as actions that have to be ritually performed by an agnihotri or by a brahmana or by a kshatriya in that sense right 
So the word karma has all of these meanings and we interchangeably use it depending on the context. And above all of this, it is also used for this concept of performing anything with the body and mind apparatus, right? All of what we do, our thinking, our actions, our responses, the way we lead our life, the what we choose to do, what we choose not to do, all of this falls under this concept called karma too. And that is why in the previous loka, Krishna said, people don't understand what is karma and akarma. I will teach you what is karma. It does not mean that Krishna will teach only about karma and not about akarma, right? I hope uh, I'm making myself clear here. Krishna said, people don't understand what is karma. People don't understand what is akarma. I will teach you what is karma. So what he is referring to as karma in the second line is the karma, what we refer to as the concept of karma, which includes even a karma. But when he is saying that people don't understand what is karma and what is a karma, Krishna says that people do not realize what is it to be active and what is it to be inactive. Right. So when we take karma to mean action, the opposite of that is a karma or non-doing. But when we take the word karma to mean prescribed action or the action that one is supposed to do, as a kshatriya, this is your karma. Krishna has been saying that to Arjuna. So when we take karma to mean prescribed action, the opposite of that is vikarma or the action that one is not supposed to do. So Krishna says, karmanaha hi api bodhavyam. Action also should be known, bodhavyam cha vikarmanaha. Even vikarma or wrong actions or actions that one is not supposed to do are to be understood. Akarmanascha bodhavyam. Akarma is also to be understood. So why is again Krishna referring to akarma? Because he had made a reference of it in the last shloka too. Because it is a misunderstanding that not acting is neutral, right? But that is not the case. Not acting can also be a sin. Not acting can also be a meritorious act. So he says, karma, vikarma and akarma is to be understood. And he also mentions because gahana karmanu gatihi. Karmanu gatihi means the nature of karma or the ways of karma. Gahana means it is very deep. You cannot take a simplistic view of it. Even what is good and bad karma needs to be given some serious thought. In fact, that confusion is that which has led to this entire discussion. Because Arjuna thinks fighting is bad karma and it will bring sin. While Krishna was telling that if he fights, the doors of heaven will open wide. And if he doesn't do it, then he is going to fail in his dharma of kshatriya or karma that he is supposed to perform as a warrior. So clearly karma cannot be understood so easily or one cannot take a very simplistic view on this idea of karma. So even the simple idea of what is good action and what is bad action is not easy to understand. So Krishna is telling, I will explain to you what is action, what is inaction, what is good action, what is bad action and what is it to say that I don't want to act. When we go through all of this, we might wonder why should we really discuss so much about action in the first place? We say that we are not the body and we say the body is not real. I had also said this a few times and there is nothing that we can do to attain spirituality. There is nothing that can be done in that sense because actions are in a completely different plane and freedom or moksha that we are talking about is in a completely different plane altogether. Then why is it important to study action? Why is a thorough look into this concept of karma required? Many times I pose this question to myself and many times I have spoken about this also. What is it to lead a spiritual life? How do you define a spiritual life? And there are actually plenty of ways of doing that and plenty of ways of answering that. I have done that a few times on the show and I have spoken about it. One way of answering this particular question is, that we should start leading a conscious life. We do not act, speak and live life as the mind dictates or as the situations dictate. We have to consciously act. We have to ask ourselves, is it okay to do this? Is it right to speak in this manner? Is it right to speak at this point at all? 
should I act or should I not act? As Swami would put it in a very beautiful and cryptic manner, he would say, watch, watch your words, watch your every action, watch your thought and eventually watch your character. Because when we say karma, it is not what we do by simply moving our limbs, right? It is when we attach our doership to a physical activity. That is what is referred to as karma. And when we say doership, it means the desires, the passions, the emotions we put behind our actions. So when we wish to lead a spiritual life, we must lead a life of heightened consciousness. I'm not using the word consciousness in the sense of something which is supernatural. I'm saying being more conscious of what you're doing, being more aware of what you're doing, be aware of the consequences of what we act and ensure that the actions are purposeful and we are in control of what we do. The person in front of us doesn't decide whether we get angry or we say certain things or you know we get upset or we lose our mind. We constantly are conscious. We do what we choose to do, right? And as Swami would say, there's a very thin line between giving freedom to the ego and thinking that that is the freedom that we are having. Swami says, you're being a slave to your ego. That is not freedom. But when we talk about real freedom, I decide what I have to do. And I make that decision consciously thinking whether this is the right thing to do or not. right? But this is still not the ultimate stage. This is something like a transit phase. From leading an absolutely purposeless, erratic, freewheeling life, we lead a control and conscious life of heightened consciousness, as I said, where we are in control of how we act, what we speak, what we do and how we react. But the third stage is when this becomes absolutely effortless. When we act, but we are still still. Where we do what we are supposed to do, but there is no exertion of any kind. And that's what Krishna says in the next shloka. I'm sure we will not have enough time to discuss that in detail. And also, it is a very, very important shloka in the study of Bhagavad Gita. How do you identify a shloka which is very important? Most often, if Adi Shankaracharya has given a lot of importance to that shloka in his Bhashyam, it means it's a very important shloka. So going by that methodology of identifying an important shloka, this is a very important shloka because he has spoken extensively about it. But this is a very central concept that Krishna is trying to teach. And uh, I'd like to speak a little more in detail about that because we will see that this is not a concept which is uh, specific only to the Bhagavad Gita or the Vedantic style of uh, looking at it. Any culture which has looked at action and what we are supposed to do in this lifetime deeply have come to this understanding, right? So we'll not have time to go into that shloka in detail. But nevertheless, I thought I will play the shloka. I will read out the meaning and I'll connect it to whatever we've been speaking so far. And we'll take it up again next week and we'll do a detailed study of that. So this is shloka number 18 of the fourth chapter. We'll listen to it and uh, we'll discuss very, very briefly about it before we conclude. कर्मण्य कर्मय पश्ये अकर्मणि च कर्मयः सबुद्धिमान मनुष्येशु सयुक्तः कृत्स्न कर्मकृत He who finds inaction in action and action in inaction he is the wise one among all men he is engaged in yoga and he has done everything that has to be done. So connecting this with what I was mentioning before I played the shloka, why are we studying about karma? Why are we going so deep into what is action, what is inaction, what is karma, what is vikarma, good and bad action? Is because we have to become conscious of what we do. In everyday life, we have to watch whatever we say, watch whatever we think, watch whatever we do, why are we acting in a certain manner and take control of our lives in that sense. But after having taken control of our lives, we have to go into that phase where we act. If we look at Krishna, we look at the way Swami would act, they certainly did what had to be done at each point. Whatever they did was appropriate action. Whatever they spoke was absolutely what was meant to be spoken at that particular time. But still, they had a certain 
effortlessness in the way they live their life and that effortlessness can be described as spontaneity right that there was no control there or there was no necessity to review to have a dilemma about what is right and wrong to have a debate in the mind as to what is to be done or is something to be done at all one does not need that effort in that sense and in that sense it becomes effortless action and effortless action becomes inaction right and that is what krishna is telling that you know from being in a situation where there was arjuna he was letting his emotions swaying away from what he was supposed to do right he was allowing his mind to control him and krishna said no no you have to take control over it and you know we spoke about the concept of swadharma how you you battle against your likes and dislikes and you try to do your dharma all of this is means by which you consciously take control over your actions but from there you're supposed to go to this third stage where that action becomes effortless and that's what krishna says here he says he who finds inaction in action action in inaction so the one who finds inaction in action and is able to see action in inaction he is the one who is truly wise and that is the stage that one is supposed to reach as i said we'll go through this shloka in much more detail next week we'll conclude with this in this particular episode dear listeners i most humbly offer this at swami's lotus feet and as always i thank all of you for joining me again this week do join me again next week for the continuation of this gita series the fourth chapter especially this shloka which is very very important till then take care jai sai ram